0: Hello, my name is Richard Metcalfe, founder of X-Quadrant. I coach some of the world's top executives and management teams, helping them achieve bigger and more meaningful results than ever before. In this season, I'm speaking with C-suite leaders from around the globe to find out what the COVID-19 pandemic has taught them and what wisdom they have to share for other leaders. Welcome to Leadership Lessons challenging times today i'm speaking with ben page who is the uk ceo for ipsos mori a global research company Uh, ben's got 30 years of experience uh, in this sector uh, incredible tenure as an executive and he's lived multiple business crises including the 2008 financial crisis where he was also the uk general manager I think what you'll find in the interview is how he talks in a very human way about what it's like to be CEO um, dealing with several um, thousand uh, employees. Uh, And is also brutally realistic uh, about the need not to succumb to our optimism bias and to focus on the worst case scenarios as well as what we hope will happen. So, listen in. Ben has got a lot of wisdom to share, and he shares it in a very casual and engaging way. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ben Page. Hi, Ben. Good to see you. Hello. Good morning. Well, great to have you here. Um, Before we go any further, why don't we just start with like a quick two-minute elevator pitch or introduction. Just tell us uh, who you are and what Ipsos Mori is for those rare people who don't know.
1: Okay, so I'm Chief Exec of Ipsos Mori in the UK and Ireland. Um, I'm on the Global Management Committee of Ipsos. We're a a large global uh, research and information organisation. We're about 19,000 people globally. Uh, I'm responsible for about 1,500 of them in Britain and Ireland, and we look at everything human beings think or do, basically. Um, our biggest clients are people like Google and Facebook, or, or large manufacturers like um, Unilever, but we also probably we think we're one of the largest providers of research to governments around the world. So that's uh, that's broadly us, and we're so we're everything about how people make decisions and trying to provide intelligence and analysis. For decision makers across the public and private sector, I've been there for 32 years, having started there at the age of five.
0: <laughs> wow! So yeah, you started as the paper boy and has now become the so, global.
1: I, know, well, I was slightly older. I think I was 22. Anyway, there we go. Excellent.
0: Yeah, brilliant. So, um, so that's the intro. So we'll, we'll get on to some of the research findings that, you, that might be relevant to people in in uh, times of crisis or in challenging sure. times. But first of all, how as a business have you at uh, Ipsos Mori you know, in the UK had to adapt to uh, COVID-19, right? It's hit pretty fast, pretty unexpected. Exactly. And it's like the 2008
1: recession at high speed, and, but with the added complication, of course, that we, we still do about £45 million pounds worth of face-to-face interviewing a year for mm. the government and for media owners who want the fully... Representative samples rather than online panels, which is the bulk of market research. And so, of course, we had to make a decision to furlough uh, lots, hundreds of interviewers who do that work. And of course, there's now a big question about when it will restart. Um, we've transferred some of it online into telephone, and we've converted some of the face-to-face interviewers to become remote telephone interviewers because some of our clients just need continuous data, and they, they, if we can, if we can gather it by telephone. Uh, they will be happy with that. So we've done some of that. There's also just some people like you know, receptionists, et cetera, who we've had to furlough because there is nobody coming into reception. Uh, but overall, um, you know, we are we are turning out to be able to work at home quite effectively. And I think that's one thing that a lot of knowledge-based industries will be thinking about is particularly if people are reluctant, and we have some data to suggest they may be to be anxious about working in a busy crowded office whether we'll actually, you know, repurpose some of our offices in future. I've, there's already one where the lease expired and uh, we were planning to go into a flexible working space. And now we've just they're all working at home. They don't have an office anymore. Uh, so that's saving uh, some money. And I can see that being quite a big, potentially a big change. I could see lots of people only coming into the office a couple of days a week in the future.
0: Yeah, it was interesting when I was at Cisco. There was some very similar things going on. Cisco was obviously on the vanguard of remote working because of internet and everything else. And and um, they say, you know, the future is here, but it's not equally distributed, right? That's
1: been um, Gibson's favorite quote. Yeah.
0: And um, one of the things that I found was that you know one of the things that hadn't caught up necessarily was how do you then adapt, right, in a yeah. in a world where people are at home. And then we're coming into the office at different times of the week, and then never see each other physically. So I yeah. think there are some things that will have to kind of be worked out. But I yeah. think you're right. This is definitely an moment. We, I mean,
1: we have WhatsApp groups, so we've tried to get everybody into a, a WhatsApp group for their different teams. Um, the management committee have one. We have a you know we have face to face conversations on MS Teams uh, three times a week. So we're talking to each other. I do a broadcast to the whole company, which I used to do sort of every three i used to have face-to-face meetings with everybody in different offices it was a bit of a bind traveling around but i did it Mm. quarterly and now of course i'm doing and i think it's it's necessary in a crisis but i'm doing weekly calls and there's you know there's 1200 1300 people on the call Mm. just for a 20 minute update of where we are and what's happening because what we know is that people in a crisis demand for information rises so every week i'm like what on earth am i going to say to them this week but we usually have some new things to say and the feedback. I mean, to be honest, I think and, and I think it's a small it's a bit like the effect that we've seen with the rally round the flag effect for governments. People support the leadership generally, assuming they're not yeah. Donald Trump uh, in times of crisis. And, you know, this, people's responses have been very positive. So I think it's important to reach out to people. It's a terrible American expression, but, to, you know, to connect with people. And the demands are particularly in, in, in the times of crisis that you have to do more of that. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I have a saying I say with some of my clients. I say, you know, when times get challenging, tweet like Trump. Um, <laughs> which is just a memorable way of saying, you know, to overcommunicate, right? Overcommunicate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're never gonna to be told off for communicating too much in these moments.
1: Yes. No, um, people want and they want to know that, you know, you're looking at the issues. They need a bit of empathy about people's situations. So that's what we're trying to do and, and being transparent, we've got to workers consult we we haven't been sort of con, you know consultation led internally particularly but we're now we've now had to set up formal consultation over pay cuts and uh, reducing pension contributions but actually we've had a lot of people volunteering I mean I've taken a pay cut and served the management team but a lot of people have actually come forward and just volunteered for pay cuts even before we've made them mandatory through consultation so you know, people do do want to make it the contribution because what we did in, you know, what we're trying to do is what we did in 2008, which you saw in the economy as a whole, of course, which was trying to protect employment where possible. And I think the fact that in Britain the government's furlough scheme has been extended by another month gives again gives a bit a bit longer for for people mm-hmm. to sort of try and see where the dust settles and therefore what the implications are going to be in terms of yeah. employing people.
0: So. You talked about 2008 a couple of times and you started to talk about some of the decisions you've been taking um do you have a kind of a mental playbook so like what are the two or three things that you focus
1: on just you know look at be brutal. The, the evidence is that all of us have optimism bias and we all hope that everything's going to turn out well so if you know that you have a natural bias towards optimism then you have to be brutal about looking at the worst case scenario which we've done. So, I mean, if, not, you know, you've got any job, we've, at the moment we've got projects that, are, that have been put on hold for more than three months. We've taken them off the books. So we aren't sitting there pretending they're, you know, and until they're definitely going to confirm that they're coming back. They're not on our books. So we can see what our revenue would look like without them and therefore what our cost base would look like without that revenue uh so i think that's sort of brutal brutal honesty and but also mm-hmm. just transparency with people people aren't stupid uh they know that you know the company can't well we can't lose money you can do for a short time or month to month but you can't do it you know you can't do it for very long so um you know just just be transparent with people i mean in 2008 i had to let go of 90 people in the end um but we did it in a way that was you know reasonably sensitive in terms of who we chose and. Uh, morale went up so um i'm not we haven't had to do that this time and people are absolutely rallying around uh the business but we'll you know we don't know what the recovery looks like if we can't do any face to face interviewing for a year uh, then um, you know there are some things some other things that will have to happen but um i think it's just important to be transparent and 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 understand other, other people's positions really
0: yeah what's yeah what's the um the most difficult or complex decision that you've had to take you know where in this time when visibility comes right down
1: well i think i mean I, as the, you know it's making decisions at some point you've got to make a decision about where, what's going to happen in the future and at the moment we haven't had to make that And i think it will get it, it will get some um, we've had the original rush of cancellations so people you know one of our clients just said look we're not going to all that work we wanted you to do this year we're moving it to 2021. Or another of our clients said, um, what did they say? We just cancel." They've got 30 people working for them. They don't do any work for anybody else. They're just doing this one project. And they just said, oh, we're cancelling everything now for six months. Uh, and it's like, okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, client's almost, the client, the, indir- the, act, the direct client was almost in tears, actually, because they've worked with these people for, for a very long time. But um, we've been able to furlough them and redeploy them the most difficult decision I think is really when we're going to come out of lockdown. And so it's a sta- it's a stage series of decisions, but at some point, you know, we're going to, if we're, if we're unable to resume or we find out things are impossible, we'll have to take some, some tough decisions, but at least I think, so we're not, we're not rushing into things, but we're being transparent. So, so far we've, you know, we've, 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 you know, we've got a tapered form of pay cuts. I didn't rush into just doing pay cuts across the board because junior people in my industry don't earn that much. And, you know, paying rent to live in London is pretty expensive for them. So I didn't, I wanted yeah. to do David. So we, ha- we haven't, I don't think I've had any terrible decisions so far. And, you know, there's been, everything's been a pretty much a no brainer so far. It will get more difficult if there's you know, if we're facing, if furlough ends and you've got to pay 200 people to do nothing and you've got no income coming in to cover their wages, then you have to, that's going to be more tricky. But so far that decisions, that's been moved, of course, back until the 1st of July, so we will see where we are on the 1st of July.
0: And, and when you look back at previous times, um, 2008, for example, was there a surprising side effect or outcome or um, a positive outcome think, of those challenging most, times? I
1: think when I, we looked back at the data for 2008-9, and the most depressing thing was not the, um, uh, and I think this is the challenge with COVID-19, so originally many forecasters were saying there was going to be a V-shaped recovery. I think they're now talking about a U-shaped recovery or even a, mm. a some sort of L-shaped recovery where you go down and stay down because I think looking at certainly looking at our business after 2008 it carried on shrinking. Uh, it shrank in 2009, 2010 and 2011. We only reached bottom in 2012 looking at our business, looking at looking back at the data. I and mean, I was I was CEO in charge, but of course I've forgotten it in the good years of the last, uh, <laughs> the last eight years or so. And so I think the challenge is as, as you know, so we've we basically closed the hospitality and, you know, and the uh, large travel and large parts of retail. And the question is how those knock-on effects play through the economy. And we, you know, it's not clear yet, even as those things reopen, they won't reopen in the same way. Mm-hmm. And that means, you know, if we see what we've seen in China with people, just shops reopening, but spending still very, very constrained because people are worried about their jobs, yeah. so they start saving. Uh, they've already noticed that they can get by without a whole load of oat milk lattes and chicken sandwiches from fret every day, and they've noticed they're saving quite a lot of money. They've noticed yeah. by not going out, they're saving quite a lot of money. And because they know that things are still rocky, so there's a sort of – because you know, the economy is ultimately – heavily influenced by consumer psychology there's a real risk that all of those knock-on effects keep happening and actually our business doesn't get back to you know to growth until 2022 and i think that's you know that's probably a more realistic scenario potentially
0: Mm. yeah so that's yeah that really changes the way you have to think and plan right if that's the belief
1: yeah
0: yeah Yeah.
1: for millennials i mean we noticed after the 2008 recession that millennials were the people with the lowest so these are people born between about 1980 and nine, uh, 1995. But these were the people with lowest, the lowest levels of trust in the economy, and you know that they were they were because they were hit as they as they graduated by the recession after the after 2008. But the challenge is now they're now having kids and they've now hit this, you know. So they they've had a sort of double whammy uh, in one in one sense. But no, absolutely, I think that's the that's the challenge that the recovery. Won't be V-shaped, and there are all—it's a bit like an earthquake, but with very long aftershocks. And so we're just in the foothills, I'm afraid. Uh, It feels like what's really going to come. I mean, there will be some benefits. Some people will develop new business models, direct to consumer. Um, We we can—we're moving. We're doing all sorts of things digitally that we would have regarded as difficult before, or you know, Mm. obviously not preferable to doing things face to face. But they're actually turning out to work quite well. So there will be some there will be some upside, but I don't but in terms of overall money flowing around the economy, I'm I'm pessimistic.
0: Mm. So how is how do these difficult times force you to grow as a leader yeah how have you actually been stretched yourself the main
1: thing is people want to you know they want authenticity they want clarity i mean they want to know that somebody has a plan even if you say even if you don't have a plan you better make it appear that you do have a plan (laughs) um you know because clearly there's a huge amount of uncertainty um no so you know you've got to you've got to show up at this point and you've got to be you've got to be frank with people you've got to be empathetic uh, you're never going to please everybody, but you've got to be clear. Um, it takes you end up working harder than ever. I mean, I've taken a 20% pay cut, and I'm working, I'm working longer hours than ever. Uh, but no, they want to see you. They want clarity that you need to over communicate. You've got all your different stakeholders that you've got to talk to, uh, reassure, and also, but also, you know, stop false optimism. I think that's the other thing. There's a sort of hope that like people can ignore things and it will all get better, and it won't. So those are the sort of challenges. I, would, I wouldn't say any of them are particularly rocket science. It just requires visible leadership. Uh, and that means getting out there and doing it. If you're one of those people who suffers from imposter syndrome or something like that, then you're going to have more difficulty at this sort of time, of course. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's like anything. If you've, I mean, I do a lot of public speaking anyway, so talk, doing the webinars for 1,200 people is fine. It's something I I do for a living sort of thing. Yeah, but yeah, that's what people—that's what people want. They want to see. They want, you know, and they—they like seeing the pictures. I even get people asking me, "What's that picture behind you, Ben?" and things like that. So you know, fine. I mean, we're one thing that the crisis is doing is letting us all see more of each other's lives and uh, backdrops and domestic existence, of course, which in some ways is positive.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's um yeah it can add in a different dimension i think it 's just a question of when everyone 's working remotely there can be a tendency to become transactional you know in teams and in relationships um, because you don 't get don't, the soft- i, I, mean,
1: I don 't know about you, but I've found actually that I have more informal sort of friendly chats with people because you 're now seeing their you're now seeing their domestic lives. So we never yeah. had, a, we never had a, a chat group for the management team. We'd all talk in emails. <laughs> and now we're sending each other ridiculous little video clips and gifts. <laughs> and God knows what else, that, like everybody else's. And I think that, if, I assume that seems to be happening across the business. So people mm. actually in some ways feel closer. I mean, and it's something that yeah. we've seen in research with the general public. We've got 80% of people saying that they're talking more to relatives and to, to people who matter to them.
0: Yeah, Oh, fabulous. Uh, is there anything else from the research that you think is has well, I mean, surprised think you in I mean, this time?
1: Yeah, I mean, what's come out of it in Britain? I mean, Britain is one of the more compliant countries and, and, you know, there's 90% support for the lockdown, 80% support for the police. There's been a 16 point surge in support for the government, which has been also replicated across Europe, in, in France, in Italy. and In Germany, Angela Merkel has got 79% satisfied, which in political terms is like walking on water, quite <laughs> frankly. Uh, So those are but most people are now more worried about the economy than they are worried about their own personal health. Uh, But at the same time, there's a lot of support for lockdown generally. And I think this is the point that people are anxious about coming out of lockdown, both in terms of their spending, because they're worried about the knock on effects and everything else but also because of their health. And, you know, because although most, you know, the disease does affect older people much more than younger people, there are still lots of examples of perfectly healthy young people catching it and dying. And so, I, you know, how exactly we, we come out of lockdown is going to be really horrible. Well, it's sort of interesting, and it will be interesting to see these European countries that are doing stage, phase, phase, mm. phase reopen the schools, reopen some larger shops, you know when but then when do you reopen cinemas theaters uh you know hotels bars restaurants that's the that's yeah. the question when and i i'm not sure it gets back to normal quickly or simply i mean but we'll we'll see because the vaccine is the only certainty it appears at the moment
0: yeah absolutely unless we have yeah. uh, the
1: other thing the research does show is at least in britain quite high levels of support for chinese style Surveillance. So the government tracking your phone, and if you leave the house more mm. than once a day, fining you based on your phone's activity. I mean, I suppose I suppose the way around it is not to take your phone with you every time you go out. But but it's. I know, but
0: I never. But, but people start twitching if they do, if they do that, right? You'll tell them because they'll be twitching in the
1: street. of the public support, <laughs> you know, a scheme that would let you know if you'd been near somebody that had got COVID nineteen. So. Are we going to see you know much more much higher levels of government surveillance well we'll we'll see I guess i mean that's one that's another way out along with a lot of a lot of testing, but again, our infrastructure is nowhere where it needs to be on that of course
0: yeah yeah it's um yeah, it's interesting right, how things that were once considered almost impossible to imagine, suddenly become on the table, right? Um, I mean, the magic
1: money tree, Mrs May said, that, Mrs May, our former Prime Minister, said there was no magic money tree. And now it turns out there is a magic money tree and it's on steroids. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, the government is now paying the wages, of, is basically has invaded the private sector and is paying millions of people's wages. I mean, it's astonishing. And crazy. the question is that it does cost, I think, something like 40 billion. I said I don't know if that's a week or a month, but it's it's certainly a lot of money, and uh, we are, you know, we may see permanent government government debt levels at levels that none of us had ever imagined, and those to be sustained of incredibly low <laughs> interest rates for a long time to come. But exactly what the ram- if the ramifications are like the quantitative um, uh, easing after the two thousand and eight recession, that that implies yet another some sort of other asset bubble that at some point will come back to haunt us. Uh, so it's very you know, and the other the other thing is we may see you know a big social change if people if you know furlough ends and there's now mass unemployment do we get a, you know massive ructions where voters demand the governments carry on paying wages, and therefore we at some point i mean we'll see when the when the government can't borrow money easily anymore at the moment they appear people be, appear to be perfectly happy to let the British government expand by ten you know expand that spending by hundreds of billions and there is nobody's blinking an eye there, you know, interest the interest rates the government's paying aren't going up. If anything, they're mm-hmm. actually lower. So in theory, this could all carry on for some time, but uh, you know, one wonders how it's all gonna work, who knows? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's,
0: amazing. So that's amazing, Maybe
1: amazing. Yeah, our, our economics, our ideas about economics may be about to be challenged once again.
0: And if we zoom in really, you know, from this macroeconomic view yeah. into, you know, back into your organisation, yeah. um, yeah. Ben, how, have you, yeah, how do you observe leaders reacting? So what have been like, the positive ways in which you see leaders showing up in your team or in your organisation and one, people who are perhaps aren't
1: well, quite worst, stepping up in the way? The first thing I heard about, which I, I immediately asked for the person concerned to be disciplined, was that somebody demanded that everybody appear on, uh, on, their, on, their, on, their, on their FaceTime or Zoom calls or whatever, appeared smartly dressed in business attire and I just thought this was deeply inappropriate so I don't actually know the name of the person who did it but I heard about it and said this cannot be right I mean for god's sake we're asking people to work while there's children running around them and god knows what that I meant somebody actually asked them to wear a sort of tie or something on like, <laughs> I mean, uh, but in seriousness I think most of you know most people are running much more regular catch-ups briefings Uh, having check-ins etc and those i think that's really important for people to keep in touch particularly if they're you know isolated if they're living on their own or something like that so all of those things uh, that's that's the main thing and encouraging people to look after their their own mental health so making sure that people are trying to encourage people we're running yoga lessons mindfulness meditation we've got various colleagues who are offering these on on the team but encouraging people to do those sorts of things we've got recipe clubs going on uh, so we have all this sort of other activity that we that we would normally do in the office that we've now switched to online so you're in, you're trying to get people to have a routine have a separate space to work in get washed and get dressed into some clothes but mm-hmm. they don't have to be a suit and tie uh, every morning and, and, and those types of things and, and having enough time to have having coffee chats and things like that so giving people a structure um, and you know that seems to be important I think i do a webinar every thursday at 11 o'clock which is is pretty well attended and i think people i've said to people do i really need to do this and i'm like yeah yeah we like it it gives rhythm to the week people know that 11 o'clock on thursday stop what you're doing listen to ben blah blah um so people like those things and i think it's important to build those structures for the new i suppose for the new reality
0: Mm. yeah it's trying to recreate structures when you can't physically do the physical ones that you used to be able yeah. to do right? yeah. yeah yeah i talk about structure and life often you know the, the point you've got the vine and then you've got the trellis or whatever that supports the vine yeah. and yeah. obviously the life is the interest the important thing but the structure is what keeps that healthy and i think yeah. when all the normal structures have been ripped out you have to build new structures for the distributed yeah. remote world yeah absolutely yeah. Um, so given all of this, if you you know, what would your leadership lesson be to yourself ten years ago? Right? Or
1: I suppose I've learned it, but I mean I think the main thing about you know, as a as a if you're running a large organization, I mean it's I mean one nowhere as large as uh you know a a, a global multinational. But there's a great quote from Jack Welch, you know, the late guy from GEC, you know, you can't do the fucking work yourself, as he put it. So the point is I you know, I can't make my people do anything. I have great difficulty just getting them to fill in timesheets. I really put my mind to it. So mm. all I can try and do is, is you know, what what leadership is about. And I've done quite a lot of work looking at average, high performing, and failing leaders in the past. And one of the things that di- that distinguishes the ones who turn out to be more successful is uh, is, is is often about very clear communication, storytelling, um, you know, clear delegation, not being obs- uh, not being a control freak. So you're building a culture, you're trying to build a culture that defaults to the right thing. Uh, you can't do that overnight, but it's about setting the ground rules and reinforcing behaviours at the right time. Mm. Uh, but then, of course, there are certain parts of the routine, which are regular communications, being there for people, saying thank you. So you know, every time we're client, we get, I get client feedback every day um, because we're a market research company. So, of course, we survey our clients after each project. And so I will try and be disciplined about when I get one when, when they come into me. I'll make sure I forward it to the team. Say thank you. Was that good? Blah blah. It's these small things that all add up. Because people, if you don't if you don't do these small things, it's not that people people don't think oh Ben was you know somebody you're busy. They just simply think you don't care. So it's very important to to have those routines of regular briefings, regular talk talking to people. Clarity about the story, the values, et cetera. None of it is rocket science. But what I found interesting is when I studied leadership and we've looked at high and low performing organizations, what we found is that everybody talks about leadership in the same way setting clear goals, being there for people, all of those things. But then what's interesting, and you know, the project I did it was about 10 years ago, we, I talked to 40 chief execs for three hours each, and they all pretty much described leadership in the same, sort of roughly the same ways. But what was interesting was that when I looked at the diaries of those people afterwards, you found that the effective ones were actually doing it, whereas the, the ones who were less effective talked about it but didn't actually do it. Uh, so, you know, the person who told me, well, actually, Ben, at the end of the day, it's just a job. Uh, they, were, they lost their job within a year or the guy who was so um, status obsessed that he made people who wanted to come and see him go downstairs to reception and wait there to be summoned to go and see him in his office. You know, I mean, again, that guy lost his job too. Whereas the more effective ones were, you know, literally making sure that they had uh, maybe a dinner with each of their direct reports once a year. So that's 14 nights gone. You know, then they've got the next meetings with sets of clients. You can sort of see it as almost as discipline and a routine. Yeah. But if you do those things, um, that's what, you know, ultimately what good leadership is about. So making yeah. sure you have those meetings, even if you don't think they're absolutely necessary and, you, and making sure they're productive, people feel listened to, which is hugely important. Um, and then finally, random acts of kindness. There's a lot to be said for random acts of kindness. Uh, you know, you can't, you aren't going to thank everybody all the time about everything and you're not, you know, but random acts of kindness definitely go a long way. Mm.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's uh, really helpful. And again, it reminds me of the, the structure and the life thing, right? Um, yeah. You know, you go ahead and put those dinners in the diary, you know, and that's, you, you've then got to show up in them, yeah. you've got to listen, you've got to engage. Yeah. But yeah. if it's not there, it's just words again, you know, I'm going to yeah. listen to my so you team. you have to
1: make time for those catch-ups. I mean, I'm not as good as, as I should be with my direct reports, but I figure they're all quite well paid and they should know when mm. to ask. They know I'm available if they need me, but I do try and make sure they're in the diary. But in terms of standing up in front of the staff, the regular communications, yeah. you've got to do it.
0: You've
1: yeah. Got to
0: do it. Thank you. So, hey, a few quick fire questions okay, um, just to finish. Right. So, um, what's your favourite book?
1: Oh my God. Uh, My current favourite book is a book called Uncharted by Margaret Heffernan, who looks at our ability to predict the future, which at the moment, of course, is much in demand. And Margaret, of course, writes about how it's not possible to predict the future, but there are things you can do to be more resilient in an uncertain world. So that's one of my favourite books at the moment. But I'm not sure I have a totally favourite book ever. But anyway, that's, that's very strongly recommended, Uncharted by Margaret Heffernan. Perfect. Thank you. What about your um, favorite productivity tip? Oh, God, I'm, 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 you know, all of the evidence is do not multitask, focus on some tasks. And the other productivity tip is do the difficult thing that you don't want to do. Start that at the beginning of the day. Do that. Do not defer it to the end of the day. Uh, oh. we, <laughs> don't do the easy things and tip them off. Do the difficult <laughs> things. And then you'll find that you have, you know, you've got you've, got, you've, got, you've made far more progress. I would also do it now. Don't do it today. Don't delay. You know, you've got something difficult. Just do it now. Yeah. yeah. Generally do it. What
0: about the most, your most inspiring leader?
1: Oh God. Uh, that's interesting. I'm uh, trying to think. I mean, I've seen good question. Uh, but I don't have any, I, I don't know if I have anybody particularly who, I mean, you hear these great stories Uh you know, the, the J, my favourite leadership story is JFK going to the loo at Cape Canaveral in the 1960s. And so stop me if you've heard this one, but he's going to the loo and it's course race riots in America at this point. And he's having a pee and he asks the black guy who's sweeping up, he says, what do you do here at, at Cape Canaveral? And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm, sir, I'm working to put a man on the moon. And it's that sort of sense that I'm, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to think of an amazing, I mean, there's a whole load of people. The guy who led Tesco, uh, what was his name, uh, before Dangerous Dave, who took over and, and swept up, Terry Leahy. See, Terry, I wouldn't regard Terry Leahy as necessarily um, the most charismatic leader, but in terms of clarity and consistency about what Tesco stood for during those that time of success, absolute consistency, repetition, uh, focus, etc. I mean, in the end, of course, they overreached themselves and, and, you know, there's a saying all political careers end in failure but there's another saying that all careers end in failure uh but <laughs> nevertheless that sort of level of focus and consistency i think is, is hugely important
0: yeah nice well uh, a childhood hero
1: <laughs> oh god these are great questions aren't they um who would i have been really admired during my childhood that's an interesting one probably some sort of skateboarder like tony alva or tony hawks or something like that i was massively into skateboarding when i was a child so that would been some some anti you know some sort of anti-hero you know
0: so we, we're going to want to see you doing some skateboarding now on some social media that would be the next on, thing
1: you can see there's an interview of me online <clears> in the daily Mail, where <throat> they took photographs of me riding a ramp on a skate park so if you oh, type in daily mail and Ipsos Mori boss you can see photos of me skateboarding yeah what about
0: a um, a conference or gathering or or meet up or something where which in normal times you found really valuable?
1: Um, I often find uh, I used to find uh, some of the what was it called? I, there's there's various sessions that don't necessarily happen anymore. I mean, you know, Davos is interesting in terms of the breadth of people that you'll see there, although it's a bit it's a bit frenzied. I'm trying. I mean, like, again, I speak at a lot of conferences. I'm trying to. I like things where you have a mixture of people from different disciplines. Who, um, are, in fact, okay, I'll give you one. My my favourite one at the moment, one one I go to uh, most years is something in Pontignano in Italy, which is a British Italian conference of uh, politicians, journalists, and business people. Probably about fifty Italians and fifty British people, sort of curated a little bit, and uh, we meet in a monastery outside Siena. Uh, so to, to put the world to rights. So uh, David Willits, Lord Willits, uh, runs, is the British sort of convener, and then there's an Italian one, often the often a former Italian prime minister. But I love Italy. It's my favourite country on earth. It's a beautiful place. If you've been mm. to Siena, we have dinner oh, in the town hall in Siena, which has beautiful uh, frescoes of the government of Eve, the, gov- the good, good government and bad government and things like that. And we just you meet, you meet interesting people from different walks of life. They try and get a mixture of age groups, so it's not just... Uh, you know it's not just people in their 40s and 50s they have some younger people from think tanks and stuff mm-hmm. so it's an interesting it's always an interesting setup and you always meet interesting people so yeah Pontiniana, if you can get an invite uh, that's uh, that's always fun
0: beautiful and um, last thing is what's your favorite quote or motto
1: oh god again I, I, I'm these are you should have warned me about these, and i would have thought ah. about them a bit more um it's good to uh my
0: on the spot. only
1: the paranoid survive from andy groves of intel there you go yes I <laughs> the paranoid survive i've said it enough to my staff but yeah, yeah that's that point about not trying not being complacent
0: yeah brilliant and that's yeah that sums, sums up a lot of what you said today to be honest right yeah. that uh yeah. gotta take a hard look at reality
1: you have to deal with the world as it is not the world as you'd like it to be I and mean, you can yeah. try and change it to how you'd like it to be but that does take time
0: yeah, perfect. Well, hey, um, good. Ben, thank you very much. Um, very where can people find more about you or Ipsos Mori? Um, or
1: if you go to www.ipsosmori.com or type in Ben Page into Google, there'll be there should be plenty of stuff there. We've got a for regular updates on COVID nineteen. We're doing literally almost daily releases on where the public are on different attitude on things around the planet on that. Um, and do have a look at the www.ipsosglobaltrends if you're interested in. What might come out after COVID-19 has, uh, the first part of COVID-19 has passed?:
0: Perfect. I'll put those in the notes. Thanks a Take lot care. and see uh, you next time.:
1: Great, Cheers, Richard. Take care. Bye, bye, bye now. Bye, bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Now let's turn to you. if you're a top performer who's already accomplished great things and yet knows that there's a whole new level of impact and potential open to you then why don't we get on the phone and strategize on how to get you there head over to xquadrant.com forward slash speak to find out more until next time be bold and be purposeful